help me to find the things that are the things that you want me to say, Lord. Um, help me to um, not speak my own heart, not speak my own will, not advance my own agenda, but rather um, help me to just share the gospel faithfully. That's, that's all I want, Lord. And I pray that the folks who are here, who are hearing from you, who are hearing me talk, Lord, that they would hear from you. I pray that their hearts would be fertile soil, um, that that the seed of your word um, would find uh, find good purchase and grow into something uh, great, Lord, something that glorifies you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To move this. It's going to be in the screen otherwise. Um, so uh, I, I joke about it a lot, uh, and I... I, I joke about it because it's because uh, it's kind of funny, honestly. But um, I, I want to talk for a minute about uh, about Abigail's birth. Um, Abby uh, gave birth, or Ma, Jess. <laughs> Abby has not given birth. She's not allowed to until I'm or until she's forty or I'm dead, whichever comes second. Um, so Jess had Abigail, um, and. The process of Abby coming along was long and and difficult. Uh, in addition to the fact that Jess had 52 hours of labor, uh, which is a lot, I assume. I know that my wife loves hearing young ladies who say, "Oh yeah, three hours in and out." <laughs> you know, and I, I think most women really love hearing that sort of thing. Um, but but for Jess, it was 52 hours of labor and and sort of in a in a, a sort of preview of the stubbornness that we would get later in life, she was uh, back labor. She was posterior. She was facing the wrong way. Um, and so it was all back labor for, for many, many hours. And, and I remember uh, going through this with her um, where we walked because walking is supposed to sort of advance the process. And so we walked around the mall and we walked around the hospital and we walked around like it was it was snowing at the time, and so we were unable to do that outside. And so it was one place or another we were walking. And there was after a certain point where I'm like steadying her, and and I think um, when we actually got Abby to turn around, they had just doing. And and by the way, she's like super pregnant. I mean, like if you see the picture, she's really pregnant. But they they had her do like lunges, and and she couldn't do them because she was so exhausted. And so she's like holding on to me and I'm holding on to her and we're lunging together to get the baby to turn around. And she stubbornly refused. And, and finally she's born and um, there was a lot of exhaustion, a lot of tears, a lot of like pain and everything else. And like, that's not even just it because if you flash back a year, you know, my wife was pregnant with, you know, the first time and we lost we lost the baby, and that was that was horrible because we told everybody in the world that she was pregnant because we were so excited for the birth of our first child after, I don't know, like 20 years of marriage or something. How long? <laughs> 14 years of marriage, was it? Yeah. Um, and so everybody knew, and we had people. I remember at about nine months I had a, a psychiatrist at work ask me, like, oh, your wife should be having a baby about now. Well, thanks for bringing it up. You know, and it was just... The whole process was long, and it was difficult, and it was painful, and and even the birth was painful and hard and long. And when the baby was finally born, it was night and day. Um, that's one of those metaphors that the scriptures use. 
and it's it's touched on in this text, and that's why I'm gonna why I'm talking about it now. There's sort of this night and day moment where where before the birth there's hopelessness, like a like an experience of is this ever going to end? Is that about accurate? Because that's what they said in the baby birthing class, and that's all I know. Um, I, <laughs> I was in and out. Uh, <laughs> But there's this moment of hopelessness, like, oh, my gosh, is this ever going to end? Is this, you know, and, and then you hold the baby for the first time, and it is magical. In Abby's case, like, it was magical because we were both exhausted, and finally this child we've been hoping to hold for years, like, is there. And the very first thing she did at that moment when my wife is holding her beautiful little baby is she unleashed her bowels all over her. And I don't think Jess minded because it was Abby. Right? And, and Abby is still like my little treasure. Like she is still wonderful. And, and I, I, you know, Titus is too. I'm not taking away from Titus or anything. I'm just saying like this was a long time coming. Um, we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning and, and for the next few weeks. Uh, I'm going to be preaching next week. And then Jeremy will be preaching the week after that. Um, and, and right now we're going to be looking at this sermon that Peter did on Pentecost. And um, right out of the gate, he's going to quote the book of Joel. And, and that's why I'm talking about childbirth. Because he's going to talk about childbirth, too. He's going to touch on it. But Joel is like a really cool book in the Old Testament. Partially because we have no idea when it was written or what it's talking about. Which makes it extra cool. <laughs> because like it's easy to put things into boxes and leave them there. And it's like, oh, well, this is just about Nebuchadnezzar, or this is just about locusts, or what have you. But in Joel, what we're seeing is, Joel is um, this letter, or this prophetic thing, that is talking to the nation of Israel about a swarm of locusts. Um, my understanding is a locust is a grasshopper that is eating something that you care about. Is that about right? I mean, like, and, and nobody here has experiences with locusts lately. Right? But plenty of grasshoppers. Um, what was happening was a plague of locusts was swarming through Israel at a level that was unheard of. Like never before, never again. And actually, I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to read just a line here. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. Like, it is so bad that it's, you know, look, our crops. And our crops have been eaten, and what was left was eaten by the next round. And what was eaten, you know, left by them was eaten by the next round. And Joel actually talks about them getting to the point that the locusts have eaten the stubble to the dirt. And there is nothing left. Now, the average farm around here is big, right? I don't know. I don't have a farm. I don't farm. I, 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 uh, I yeah, I, I grow impatient, but that's about it. Um, but I'm assuming, you know, to farm in Montana, we're looking at 1,000 plus acres. Is that, is that a fair number? Someone who has a farm nod or nod no, like so I know what's going on. But... The average farm in ancient Israel, you're looking at like 25 to 30 acres, okay? And you were not selling your grain or waiting for the market price. For the most part, you were eating it. So you wake up in the morning, you walk out, you look across your fields, which you can actually look at because they're close to your house, and they're being eaten by locusts. That's your food this year. And it's not like, oh, well, the other field will survive, 
That's it. So there'll be nothing to eat this year. Nothing. Um, if you can kind of imagine the fear and the desperation and the pain associated with that as they're like looking out and everything is gone and there's nothing but barren ground and hopelessness. It's possible that um, Joel is talking about an invading army. It's possible he's talking about actual locusts. Um, but his metaphors are like fire, like that fire consumes the field. And whether they were burning the fields to kill the locusts or the locusts were like a fire consuming anything or like the enemy is coming, tearing through like a fire, like whatever it is, it is there. And so he quotes from, as Peter quotes from Joel, he quotes the transition, which you find in the prophets. You'll find like a, guys, you're screwing up. God's judgment is on you. I'm not saying that God's judgment was on you all this year. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me saying that. The grasshoppers this year, like that's not, that's not what I'm saying. In this context, Joel is saying, look, you guys are screwing up. God is mad and he sent these locusts as a punishment. And you need to understand if you turn, if you repent, if you make right, God is going to bring you more than you lost. And your storehouses will be full of grain and wine and oil. And you'll celebrate and rejoice and eat a whole lot and it'll be wonderful. It's coming, but you have to get right first. So, Peter picks up. Um, of course, I closed as soon as I... Um, so, the Holy Spirit descends on the upper room. Um, and I've actually... They're not... Uh, some scholars will say they don't know where it is. Um, there was a church built in the location that was assumed to be the upper room in like the second or third century. Um, and then it became a monster in the Crusades. And then it's actually just a, it's not a church now, it's just a room. And you can go there. And I stood in it um, a few years ago when I was in Israel. You can stand in this place and it is not that big. Right. But it's got a, a street outside and it is right next door to the tomb of David which is kind of cool. Um, so they're there. They're speaking in languages they don't know. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine, meaning like, hey, guys, it's early in the morning, and they're already drunk. Look, they're speaking in languages they don't know, um, which I assume sometimes happens when you drink too much. You speak in languages you don't know. Um, so we pick up in Acts 2:14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. So he stands up, he steps out to the crowd who are all out there, probably going to visit the tomb of David, right? And remember, this is during a festival, so everybody's there celebrating the harvest. And so the eleven stand with him, and that's significant because they're all standing with him and saying, we're endorsing this guy. What he's saying is the truth, right? And so Peter stands up and he speaks, probably in Greek, because everybody spoke ancient Greek, um, because it was like the language of the empire. So Peter addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. So like all y'all who are, or excuse me, not all y'all. So it's y'all who are traveling and visiting Jerusalem for the festival and the folks who are from Jerusalem, listen up. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Um, so he starts off by addressing this thing like, you know, it's a personalized moment. They're not drunk. It's nine. Um, and that's kind of significant. A lot of people, well, we're going to get into that. Like he says, look, we're not drunk. It's too early in the morning to be drunk. Listen to what we have to say. No. 
This is what was spoken to you by the prophet Joel. Now, everybody in the audience is a loyal, like, devout Jew, right? And so they all know the book of Joel. And they consider the book of Joel to be, like, serious stuff and a serious prediction about the, like, state of the world and everything else. And remember, Joel is saying, look, everything is destroyed. Everything is laid to waste. Israel is in this place where they're under the thumb of Roman rule. And, like, like things are not really all that ideal. Um, and there's some, like, parallel there. But beyond that, every one of us, every one of us, and I'm going to kind of bring this into the context here, right? Every one of us experiences this at some point in our lives where, like, the garbage overtakes us, where it seems like locust and fire are eating everything that's good and right. Whether it's the locust and fire of, like, just the garbage that's happening in our life or our own sins and our own screwing up, right? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I have screwed up in huge ways at different times where I've backed up and thought, wow, I think I just screwed everything up. Like, I don't think I could possibly fix this. It's so bad. Look at how broken it is. Look at how broken I am. Look at how broken the world is. And in fact, if you want to look at the world around us right now, you can see this. Like, everybody is angry. Everybody is furious. People are turning from what is right and, like, gorging themselves on bitterness and resentment and hate, right? They're worshiping the government. They're worshiping their firearms. They're worshiping their money. They're worshiping this or that or the other. And we're not turning and saying, Lord, can you save us? And so he says, listen to what the prophet Joel said. In the last days, now this is in Joel chapter 2, uh, verse 28, I think, or 26. Um, and it's right after he says, listen, I'm going to fill your storehouses with grain and with oil and all this other stuff. Don't worry, I'm going to bless you. And with the coming of the Spirit, we see this brand new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this gift from God, this like new wine, as Jesus called it, right? This fresh oil like that's being poured out on the world. Like God is doing something brand new. And Peter implies that Joel is talking about that day. In the last days... God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness, which, by the way, happened during the crucifixion, um, and the moon to blood. Before coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now he quotes a section of Joel and he's saying, listen, guys, this is that moment. You like have witnessed it. We saw we saw the Lord come. We saw the Holy Spirit poured out this morning like miracles are going to start happening. Everything is going to happen. And you might say, well, wait a minute. In the last days, what the heck is up with that? Because the world didn't end right then. But in the scriptures, what we find is in the last days, almost always refers to the period of time between the like resurrection and the end. Like we live in the last days because it is the last chunk of time in the history of the world. Right? Like, this is the time of the new covenant when Christ came and he died for our sins and, like, like, 
we're forgiven because of him. We no longer have rules as a way of getting close to God. Like you can be as good as you possibly want. You can be better than your neighbor. You can be better than the guy down the way from you on the pew. And it won't matter because you're still judged according to your own sins. And unless you are perfect, which I'm not. Anybody here? No? Unless you are perfect, that judgment is a terrifying thing. And I have lost my slides. Um, Hopefully they will come back, but we'll... See if I can actually preach out of the text without glasses. Ah, oh, it worked. All right. <laughs> so moving on. I know it's 1148 and I'm barely touching the text. I'm doing my best. Sorry. Uh, 23 through 24. Fellow Israelites. This is Peter talking again. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. So he says, listen. Jesus was this man who was here, right? Y'all saw him. And they did see him, right? They saw him because he was there. There were huge crowds of people gathering around. The whole city was in uproar. He did not go to the other side of the world to preach this sermon, which is a big deal. Why? Because there are people who say, well, Jesus is this made-up character. He didn't exist. However, it would be really hard to go to Jerusalem and say, hey, remember that guy who was here last month? And y'all saw him and he performed miracles? Like, if he actually wasn't real, they'd be like, what are you talking about? There was no guy, right? Like, this is rooted in historic fact. And, like, the church started in Jerusalem with folks coming along and saying, Jesus, the guy you saw do this stuff, these miracles, like Joel predicted, which God did amongst you through him as you yourselves know, meaning y'all saw it. Y'all saw it. There's no getting away from it. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now watch this. This is important. It was a part of the plan. Jesus was not accidentally crucified. Jesus was sent to earth with the plan that he would be arrested, that he would go through the the crucifixion and the death, that he would be resurrected. Like that was the plan. It was not just a thing that happened. God had a plan. And you, mind you, he's pointing at the audience. So the Jews there who stood up outside of the Pilate's uh, palace and yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and give us Barabbas, and all this other stuff. Like, Like, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, it's easy to get high and mighty and say, well, at least I didn't betray Jesus. But honestly... There's a line from a song that I love. Um, My sin yells crucified louder than the crowd that day. Like, every time I say, I'm going to do my thing, God, you do your thing. I'm going to choose my way. Every time I say, what I like is the most important thing. Every time I indulge in my own wickedness, I'm a part of that crowd. Every time I I go places I shouldn't go on the Internet. Every time I, I... gossip about folks every time i hate my neighbor every time i'm selfish every time i i you know indulge in my lust or or whatever like anytime i rebel against god anytime i sin i'm a part of nailing him to the cross and you are too but god raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death Because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, this is the coolest phrase in this whole text. And watch this. The agony of death. The word agony right there is 
like the Greek word associated with the pangs of childbirth. It is contractions. So the painful contractions of death. And then he says it was impossible for death to hold him in. So Christ could no more remain in the grave than my wife could hold it in while Abby was being born. Like the inevitability of the resurrection of like this new life is so engraved in stone, is so set that it was unstoppable. I assume unstoppable. I don't know. I've never given birth, but like I'm guessing it, you can't hold it in. Death could not hold Christ, right? David said about him, this is from Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Now, mind you, right next door is David's tomb. So, like, Peter's out there. He's pointing at David's tomb, the place where David's dead body is laying, and he starts talking about David. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. And so where's David? Dead. Where's Jesus? Not dead. And so as, Paul, or as Peter stepped forward, he says, listen, this Christ who you guys killed... He was sent by God. He was God. You killed him. He was set in the ground. And like birth, he was brought out. And then David said about Christ that he will not see decay. It can't be about David, right? You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, Peter continues, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died, right? Pointing at the tomb right there. He died. He is dead. He is not alive. And he was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Now, we've talked about that a bunch of times. God promised David forever and ever and ever One of your descendants will be on the throne. That was a prophecy about Christ coming because Christ is the king who succeeds David, right? Like this gets really complicated really fast, and I can't cover all of that today. Um, But Peter is saying, listen, Jesus was that king. He is that king forever. He is the one who did not see decay. He is the one who was resurrected. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So he says, and we, all 11 of us, are witnesses of it. Jesus was raised. He came back, and we are witnesses of it. There's another, like, 500 people wandering around, by the way, in the city who saw Jesus raised. Um, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. Meaning, this speaking in tongues thing, this like great act of the Spirit, this is God pouring the Holy Spirit out. And the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and make your footstool, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Peter says, listen, guys, 
David talked about this. And now it's happened. David predicted it, and now it's happened. Death could not hold Jesus. Death could not hold the Messiah. Like, so now he is risen. He's at the right hand of God. Therefore, all of Israel will be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, if you're in the audience, you're hearing Peter talk, and they're saying, wait a minute, I was in that crowd, and I did call out, crucify him. And that's the Lord and Messiah? That's like the, the man, like that's the one that God sent to save us. There's this great parable that Jesus tells about the vineyard workers and the vineyard owner where like the vineyard workers are there and they're corrupt and they're evil and the owner of the vineyard sends a messenger to go take care of them and they like beat up the messenger and kick him out of the vineyard and say, nope, this is our place. And they send the next messenger, and the next messenger gets beaten up and kicked out. And finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his son. And the son walks in, and they're like, guys, listen, if we kill the son, we can keep the vineyard for ourselves legally. And so they murder the son. And then Jesus warns, hey, but the owner's coming back, and he's going to come back with fire. So now these guys are there, and they're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Like, because if I was going to pick a fight... Did you ever pick a fight and find out that it was the wrong fight to pick? I, when I was in elementary school once, this guy was giving me a hard time, and I, I, I punched him. And then I realized that it was a mistake because I lost my temper and punched him, but he was, like, 30 pounds bigger than me. And, like, he was, like, much better at the fighting thing than I was. And he promptly, like, beat the crap out of me, to put it not gently. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this moment of, oh, that was a mistake. That was not the right course of action to take. I should not have thrown that first punch. That's where these guys are. They're like, oh, wow. You mean like the God who made everything, the God who like rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah, that God, we killed his son? Uh-oh. But honestly, again, that's where every one of us who's lost in sin finds ourselves. That's every one of us who rebels against God. Every one of us who's watching the locust of our own screwed up decisions consume everything worth having in life. Like we're watching it happen and we are in trouble and you can't fight it. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now watch this. This is what's awesome about this. And this is what's awesome about the gospel. And anybody who preaches the gospel and says it something else is horribly, like horribly cheating you. Because what do they have to do? They have to repent and be baptized. They got to earn it, right? They got to make sure they give 10% every week or else. They've got to be in church every Sunday and say the right words. They've got to read their Bible every day and pray or else. They've got to, you know, not spit in the road and be just a little bit better and make sure the scale tips one way or the other when they stand before judgment. Not a one of those things. What do you do to be saved? Believe 
You confess it as truth. You turn around and go the other way. And as far as the east is from the west, so far God removes your sin from you. Like, you don't earn it. You don't have to do some sort of crazy ritual over and over and over again. Like, they are saved because that promise, the promise to save us from sin, to save us from death, that every one of us, when we're laid in the ground, will one day see resurrection the way Christ saw resurrection. Like, that every one of us who, like, has watched the locusts eat up our families, eat up our our business, eat up our livelihood, eat up our own sanity sometimes. Like every one of us will be resurrected and that we will be forgiven because of Christ dying for us. That's amazing. It's actually what makes Christianity unique. It's what makes like the kind of heresy where people make it about something other than believing and following Jesus. Like, like you know, it's that faith in him that saves us, not anything else. It is the best promise you could get. Even the ones who killed Christ himself were given this. Even me, when I've rebelled against him, when I've turned my back on him, when I, when I chase after myself, I get it. And like all that pain and all that misery in life, all of that brokenness, all those like losses and deaths and, and, and everything else, like you get to this point where you stand and you know like Jesus is bought you, that you are redeemed, that you are made new. It's like just hold Abby for the first time. You made all of the pain worth it, right? I think every mom in the room, all the pain worth it, right? I can tell you that years of being, you know, drunk and years of being rebellious against God and years of being ashamed of myself constantly, like coming to know grace made all of that hurt and all of that misery, made every second of it worth it. Know what it means to be forgiven. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000, which was possible because... It was a big city. I mean, you know, several hundred thousand people and then all these people visiting and everything else. And what's going to happen is all the people who are visiting are going to take that gospel truth home with them and it's going to spread faster than COVID. Um, My encouragement for you today, I guess, because this is a gospel sermon, right? Like this is the first gospel sermon and all I'm doing is sharing what Peter had to say. Um, Peter said, listen. All of the brokenness, all of the wickedness, all of the rebellion, all of the misery, every bit of loss, every tear, every everything. Christ died for all of that. He died for you when you were not worth it. All you have to do is have faith. All you have to do is repent and be baptized and you are saved. It's the best news that there is. If you are a person who knows Christ Oh my gosh, praise God for that. If you're a person who doesn't, like, all you have to do is follow. All you have to do is belong to him. You might sit there and say, what have I done? Doesn't matter. Christ forgives. It's not a dance we do or something we have to memorize and we don't have to be perfect. It is Christ's death that does the work. All we have to do is accept the gift. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know 
there are times in the pangs of childbirth, like as our new life is coming about, as we're becoming new in Christ, as as um, you're cleaning us up and preparing us for eternity, Lord, um, that it's easy to forget that it it's a free gift. You know, as hard as it is sometimes to to be right, uh, as hard as it is to re- you know repent, as hard as it is to own our our failures and our shortcomings, as hard as it is to um, be your people sometimes, that, that this is a free gift. Lord God, as we look around and we see the world consumed by the locusts of bitterness and anger, um, as we feel the pain in our own lives of people who die too early or, or empty wombs, Lord God, we thank you that, that in Christ it's all made right. Help us to turn and follow him. Help us to become your people was to accept that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a good Sunday, folks.